Hello and welcome to Future Thinking from Stylus. I'm your host, Christian Ward, Head of Media and Marketing at Stylus. Today we're going to be talking about the resales opportunity, what's driving this paradigm shift in ownership and enabling the reselling phenomenon to flourish. To discuss this, I'm joined by Andy Rubin, CEO of Yerdle, which is a white-label resales business which runs the resales programs for brands like Patagonia, Eileen Fisher, REI, and Taylor Stitch. And Andy is joining us from San Francisco. And I'm also joined by Rebecca Hobbs, Stylus's own editor of retail. Welcome to you both. So, Rebecca, first of all, um, give those of us like me who might not know much about this subject a quick description of what we mean by reselling and how it fits into the wider fashion industry landscape. Well, look, uh, reselling of some form or another has been around for a very long time in the form of vintage shops and platforms like eBay. Uh, But there's been a real groundswell recently as newer, more agile players have come to the market. Uh, And the key difference really uh, between vintage and eBay and this new breed is the technology powering these companies and the fact that they're aggregators. So instead of trekking to a vintage shop or or kind of scouring individual uh, users on eBay, uh, you can shop as you would on a mainstream retailer's website, which makes it so much easier from a consumer perspective. Uh, And what's also interesting about this new breed is that they're clearly targeting very specific demographics and consumer tribes in a way that eBay and kind of the little vintage shops never really could. And it's becoming much more of an exercise, I think, in branding and customer acquisition and reflecting the dynamics of retail much more in that way. And then, of course, you've got own label resale, which is the area that Andy works in, uh, which could be the most interesting area yet, I think, the fact that brands can own the kind of second-hand cycle and actually want to as well. That's a huge change in attitude, which uh, we can hopefully discuss later on. So, Andy, perhaps you could um, t- t- tell us a little bit about Yerdle and, and, and what role it plays in this uh, world of reselling. Absolutely, and completely agree with the growth right now in, in resale. has been tremendous. In fact, resale is growing faster year for year than e-commerce did in the 90s, um, and I've believe will be uh, will potentially even be more disruptive as it continues. The role Yertle plays, we power we power the most innovative brands in the world doing resale. We do all the logistics, we do the technologies. So in other words, we operate the websites that are all on the mainline brand website, so REI.com, Arcteryx.com, etc. And we fulfill those items and all of those customers, new customers and loyalty that's all being done by the brand. One of the biggest elements that is why brands need to be owning their secondary market is around the control of the brand itself. Absolutely. And I mean, Andy, when you say that you think um, this is going to be bigger than e-commerce in the 90s, why do you think that? What, what drivers, what consumer drivers are kind of leading you to make that statement? Sure. And I, I don't know if it will be bigger than e-commerce. I don't know how to compare those, but the mm. growth of the adoption is faster if you look year for year of re-commerce and e-commerce. The, the shift, the adoption and the shift is moving at the exact same rate that we saw e-commerce move. And we know how that turned out yeah, two decades later. There are three forces that are driving this right now. Um, one of them is sustainability, which is the topic of our times right now. And I think increasingly, customers are no longer okay with marketing. They want true, they, they want true change in business models. Number two is younger customers, specifically millennials and Gen Zs. And millennials and Gen Zs are shopping differently. 
their shopping resale. In fact, um, 30, 35% of millennials made either a rental or a resale purchase in the U.S. in the past 12 months. That number is going to be over 50% a year from now. And then finally, as you mentioned, Rebecca, new models. Mm. The players have brought kind of a new, the new companies have brought resale into a modern age, a digital age. It's easier to sell back or trade in items. It is easier to find items online. The experience is better, um, all of it. And so as that happens, these are powerful players. In fact, half a dozen that are, that are over a billion dollar companies right now. And the growth is not slowing down. So you mentioned sustainability there. Um, uh, resales is gaining a reputation for helping to solve some of the environmental problems associated with fast fashion, for example. Um, how instrumental do you think that uh, the reselling phenomenon can be when solving this quite big fashion sustainability problem? Absolutely. I mean, there's no, to be, I mean, we should be honest, there's no silver bullet here that is going to address everything. But, but the core issue, when you step back and look at what we are facing from a sustainability standpoint, we produce 100 billion items each year for 7 billion humans, right, each year. And so there is no amount of making 100 billion items slightly less bad where the math of that ever works. And so it is going to be essential that, that some part of this future we're talking about involves producing well-crafted, well-made items and getting far more use out of those items. And so resale plays a tremendous role in that because it allows access to those items. For all of us, it allows us to wear and to enjoy and appreciate uh, higher quality items. And it's, it's also better from a, far better from a footprint standpoint to the tune of 30 to 40% better. Now, you mentioned there, Andy, um, some of the sort of millennial and Gen Z consumers who are driving this trend. Rebecca, you've, you've written a lot about the resales opportunity on Stylus, particularly the, the consumer cohorts and communities that are driving this trend. So who are they and what do brands need to know about them? Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, as Andy said, this is um, a trend that is being driven mainly by a younger consumer. Um, but within that, uh, I think there are lots of different tribes uh, that different resellers are tapping into. Um, you know, the one that maybe immediately comes to mind is uh, companies like The Real Real and Vestiaire Collective selling to millennial women who aspire to luxury brands that they can't afford um, just completely new. But I think if you kind of drill down into that, you've actually got really interesting pockets of consumers developing and really interesting growth areas. So menswear, uh, for example, is growing faster than women's wear, um, at least at some reselling businesses. The Real Real have said their menswear business is growing faster. Um, and Depoppers also have said that, you know, they've gone to being gone from being a women's wear dominated uh, platform to having a much more even split. And that growth has really been helped along um, by resale uh, streetwear platforms like StockX and Goat. Uh, but I think another really interesting place actually is Asia Pacific, which is surprising because it's taken a huge uh, attitude shift to make that come about. Aside from Japan, which is one of the kind of foremost reselling markets uh, in the world and has been for a little while, um, reselling really hasn't been that much of a thing um, in that region at all until recently. And particularly in China, we've seen huge resales growth. Uh, Chinese consumers have historically been quite averse um, to buying secondhand because 
it's had quite negative connotations. Um, it's had uh, connotations around counterfeiting. Um, but Chinese millennials actually face a lot of the same pressures as their Western counterparts. You've got rising house prices, you've got increased job competition, and this has resulted in a second-hand market across all categories, I should say, rather than just fashion, that's doubled since 2017. And we've seen a lot of new-gen resellers kind of springing up to meet that demand and to cater to those customers, uh, both in terms of homegrown platforms like Plum, which is a Beijing-based luxury retailer, and Western players as well. Uh, Vestiaire Collective recently moved into the region um, and have said that they're doing incredibly well, there, that their basket size, is, basket size is two to three times higher than it would be in the West. So there's clearly appetite in that region, uh, which is a really interesting uh, thing, obviously, for other reselling brands to tap into. Andy, is that something that you're seeing uh, in your side as well? Absolutely. Yeah, that is very consistent with um, that's very consistent with what we see. And there's we see a generational break. Um, we see a very different generation from, um, I think, an older generation, specifically boomers, who really struggled to understand why anybody would you know, I think that there, that that generation viewed used item as something that that was less than something that you had to do if you could could not afford to buy new. And then I think that they're the younger customers we're talking about that see this as the thrill of the hunt, finding something interesting, um, being able to enjoy a brand you aspire to but couldn't afford at a full retail price. But it's a way to um, to align yourself and to tap into, be it streetwear or a higher end brand that you couldn't have otherwise afforded. And then we have the generations in the middle. And I think that the generations in between those two, as the market grows, we are seeing more participation from Gen, you know, Gen Y, for example, that um, that I think will continue to, to grow this market. But clearly it's being led in much the same way that if you um, if you talk to older generations, ride sharing, if you talk about carpooling, or hitchhiking would have been something dangerous people wouldn't have expected to um, to play out. And frankly, the Ubers and Lyfts of today don't look like the ride sharing of yesterday. So I think it's I think there are generations that that struggle to see why this is happening, and there are generations that don't even see why it wouldn't happen. And there definitely is a split between those. I think that's a really interesting point. This idea of um, reselling being an introduction for people to higher end brands that they might not otherwise be able to afford. Um, so, do you think that luxury brands are going to embrace this? Because I mean, Rebecca said earlier um, when we were talking about this that there's uh, it's often been seen as something a little bit grubby um, from a luxury brand perspective that could potentially devalue brand equity. Um, but now we're seeing brands like Burberry um, partnering with The Real Real. So is this new spirit of collaboration um, actually a, a real change in the luxury industry, do you think? I fully believe it is. I don't believe that we have truly seen it yet. So I think the partnerships that um, that we know of now, the partnerships that exist are, they tend to be marketing partnerships. And I've got a strong point of view from, from what we've seen across, you know, probably 85% of the brands that are doing this themselves is that brands need to own their secondary market. And the primary reason, especially for luxury, is that if you don't own that customer experience, because you're not supplying the items, because these secondary marketplaces are buying items back from closets, from individuals, 
that means the brand has no control in how their items, for example, a Burberry item might show up on the real wheel. And so the brands that we're talking about have built those brands by looking at every detail of how those brands show up in the world, what the packaging looks like, what the experience is. And we're, we're seeing a moment right now that's the Wild West, where one out of four customers might have an experience with a luxury brand that the luxury brand has no say in. We've never seen that happen before. And as luxury brands who have, you know, who, who pride themselves on that experience and how they talk to customers about the brand, as those brands realize that they have to own that to take back control of that narrative, we'll see more brands realizing they've got to own that secondary market themselves. Now that can be through direct-to-consumer platforms like Patagonia or Arcteryx. It's probably also working with wholesale partners and how wholesale partners um, are doing re-commerce and how they work with those partners to, again, make sure that they are overseeing how they speak to new customers about the brand. Andy, I mean, I, I mentioned earlier and you mentioned earlier, actually, the kind of the e-commerce boom um, of the, the 90s and early 2000s. And luxury brands were kind of notoriously slow at um, adopting that. Do you see kind of parallels between that time and now? Absolutely. Uh, I think that any type of customer shift that's a significant um, brands that brands that play for the long term, especially the true luxury brands, they have a they they tend to have a much longer viewpoint in terms of the brand. Uh, resale is a different shift than e-commerce. In the resale shift, what is what is relevant here is, I believe, control of the brand and the brand narrative, and that does have parallels in e-commerce. The change has parallels, but the implications of receiving um, a pair of Celine glasses in the wrong packaging. We've never seen that. And I think that if that was happening as ones and twos in a very small way, so be it, that's happened for a while. What is different right now is the growth of resale. When you look at the implications of loss of brand control, plus the growth of resale, where we are talking about one, one in four customers right now, that starts to shift that landscape. And that's where brands need to react and actually ideally be proactive and when they do, they've got tremendous advantage to gain in not just controlling the brand, but actually adding a whole chapter to that narrative. And that's that's been our experience with brands like Patagonia, Arcteryx, Eileen Fisher, et cetera. Yeah, I was interested in hearing a bit about uh, the Patagonia work because I think there's something that they do that's quite interesting, right? They, As they've not only taken back control of their secondary market, they have, they have elevated what their brand means to customers and especially new customers, but all customers. The idea that when you buy a Patagonia jacket and you know you, you use it to with, you know, use it for what it was made for, be outside with it. When you're done with it, whenever that might happen, your your child might outgrow a jacket. You might no longer want that color. You might change sports. You just bring it back to a store or you mail it back. And the idea that Patagonia is a brand that stands behind their items beyond their guarantee to say, when you're done with it, just bring it back. They want it back. That starts to affect the overall brand. And then they are, they are capturing the stories of how people are using their items. And I think that, that that storytelling nature of what they do well is so powerful and a lesson for all brands. 
How exactly are they? Are they? I'd be interested to hear about how they're capturing these stories because I think it's a really, I mean, really quite a smart um, marketing tool for them to to actually take something which a normal brand might see as a as a problematic issue that people will send their clothes back and turning it into an actual positive marketing tool. So when uh, when you mail back a Patagonia item, so I've got a I've got two I've got two two children at home who outgrow Patagonia once a year. And when we go on the website and we request um, a mailback kit, a trade-in kit, we have the opportunity to talk about the story of the items we're sending back. And what we expected is a small percentage of people to participate in that. And the response has been overwhelming. And some of the stories of these items um, would bring tears to anyone's eyes. Like they're really beautiful stories of, of humans and experience. And they start to, um, as we're talking about, they elevate what a brand is about. And I think a brand like Patagonia that's, that's being proactive in this way, not only is controlling the narrative in the secondary market, which is happening whether they're in the market or not, but they're using, just like e-commerce, they're using their um, their what they're doing in this space to actually go beyond control and actually take advantage of those opportunities to, to elevate the brand. And it's really beautiful. Yeah, and I think, um, you know, if we look into the future, um, Andy, what you said there about kind of sharing that product uh, story and, uh, you know, the narrative behind a product and its ownership is something that's also really applicable to luxury as well, obviously. And um, I I certainly kind of can foresee a future when if you are um, kind of sending back a product or you're passing on a product, uh, you may even be able to use, uh, I don't know, a technology such as uh, blockchain to kind of keep uh, keep track of an item's history, whether that's kind of the catwalk that it was first worn on um, or a kind of celebrity uh, kind of red carpet sighting uh, down to kind of individual stories. Um, and I think that could be a really interesting area to explore, the kind of, I guess, uh, keeping track of an item's history and its sentimentality and its relevance really um, kind of socially and uh, and culturally as it uh, passes through owners. Absolutely agree. And the brands that the brands that we appreciate working with the most are brands that have this history, this heritage about where their products come from, who the designers were, what was going on in that time period. Mm. And a number of brands have groups. Nike is one of the most famous examples. They've got a group inside Nike called the DNA group. And they they're essentially the brand historians. Um, and, and many luxury brands have these organizations inside that keep track of the, the products, where they came from, what they were inspired by, what was, they're not, they're not fast fashion. Mm. There's real depth and real narrative in, in what these products are about. And I think that the, as that, as that narrative comes to light, it adds another dimension to the product and I think makes products more interesting and, um, adds value to the products themselves. Absolutely. And I guess it allows new owners as well as brands to kind of be custodians of that information. That's exactly right. And the technologies that you speak of are, are absolutely coming. They're happening now. Um, and as those play out, we just we simply um, develop more tools to be able to recognize um, what's behind the products. And I think that all of that provides a richness that um, that knockoffs and copycats have a hard time replicating. Okay, so we so last year clearly was a was a, a seminal year for the the reselling economy. What do you think um, twenty twenty will hold? 
Sure. I mean, there are a number of there are a number of things that we've seen that we saw in 2019 that will continue to play out with the Real Reels um, public offering. I think that was a that was a watershed moment, especially for luxury. We will continue to see uh, there are several other companies that are maturing. We will likely see um, public offerings for. We are also seeing more mainstream adoption um, of resale in different uh, department stores, as well as more integration of physical and online. Physical stores do a fantastic job of allowing you to experience a product, to fall in love with the product. And when you start to combine that with the liquidity that, Rebecca, you were mentioning, being able to find your size in a -a one-of-a-kind item, when you combine that with the ability to quickly see or find your item and have that delivered or stay in touch or or even have a wish for an item that will come to you, we will also see this um, further integration of physical and online where physical retail does a great job, especially for resale of, of interest and newness and combining that with the ability to find, you know, your size or see a full assortment online is powerful. And I expect we will see a lot more of that in 2020. Thank you very much. That was a fascinating conversation. I'm now thinking about the idea of reselling my toddler's clothes and telling the stories of how many times you threw up over them. I'm not sure that's the kind of beautiful brand narrative that they'd want to hear, but, um, I'd like to thank my guests, Andy Rubin and Rebecca Hobbs, and thank you for listening. I hope you'll join us next time for more Future Thinking from Stylus. You've been listening to Future Thinking from Stylus, the show where our analysts, alongside industry thought leaders, unpack the big trends you need to know about. Find out more about what the future holds for your business at stylus.com. If you like what you heard today, make sure you subscribe to Future Thinking in iTunes or Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts to hear new episodes as soon as they're available. 